Dublin man, Mr. Garrett Farley. Garrett, how are you doing, pal? Yeah, very well. So nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. How are you? How are we getting on these strange times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. Thank you. We're very lucky. Like you've said, it's it's unprecedented where we're at at the moment. I think there's a glimmer of hope that it's starting to turn, but um, we're still being quite cautious over here and um, working from home. So very lucky. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange. Like I said before, it's the mental side trying to keep yourself like mentally taking over. And but you're you're busy with work, I'd say, are you? Yeah, no, I've I've been lucky in that respect. I think we we all at the start of it, we say we're into week ten now. I think the joke the joke was, am I working remotely or remotely working? And I think I've been quite fortunate that I've got quite a lot going on, and the world has been overtaken by Zoom, as we are yeah. now. So we all have to have our certain allocation of Zoom time on a daily basis just to keep us going. So yeah, everything's good. Yeah, I never actually heard of Zoom before all this. So no, neither did I. Like a, a dinosaur. So it's a whole new world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll go back then to the very, very start. Uh, when you came from Home Farm, a good Dublin club, and went to Aston Villa at like tender age of 16. Was it hard as a kid going over to England at that young age? Yeah. Um, I signed a pro contract on my 17th birthday. And that was, so I went as a pro. I was very fortunate signed a three-year pro contract straight away and I would say I'm probably one of the most ill-prepared kids to move to England ever obviously came from a very very close family if you like and I think I used to get a nosebleed if I was asked to stay six doors down from where I lived never mind then go and move to England so it was a massive challenge for me and one that I found very very difficult um, so I think just varying levels having always been at home to then one day moving away and being, being done. And then obviously football having been hobby before that, then all of a sudden it becomes a job and there's people gunning for you in the club because I went into that strange situation where there was obviously still white yeses there. And then you come in as this young lad who's got a pro contract straight away. So it was very, very difficult and I found it very, very hard. And then I obviously got injured within a short time of being there and I missed a huge amount of time. So lots of challenges. And I think everyone who goes away faces different challenges, but um, it was it was a difficult time for me. Yeah. Were you staying in Diggs or with a family or what was it? No, 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 the Diggs, Aston Villa was quite funny because when we, when we went over and I signed for Aston Villa fundamentally down to one man, who was a guy called Dave Richardson, who was the youth development officer at the time. And he'd come over to Dublin, he'd met my family and my family trusted him. And he was probably the main reason that I, I chose Villa at that time. I had I was fortunate. I had lots of offers. I turned down more lucrative offers because I felt that I would be able to settle there and that that would be the best place for me. So within that, we ended up being in digs. Myself and another uh, Irish player, John Murphy, who was a really, really good guy. We stayed with the physio. But for me, it became very difficult because having gone in as a young pro and a lot of noise around your potential and what you were going to be, I ended up being injured for nearly six months. So you were spending all of your days with the physio and then seeing him again when you got home. So again, that was a different challenge. Yeah, that's strange. Did you get to come home much at all while you were injured or did you have to stay over there? No, but it wasn't like uh, the regular Ryanair now where it's like buses no, going yeah. every few hours from Birmingham to... Um, Dublin. No, no, no. And again, weird stuff because again, we're not having the experience of living away. 
I think my parents and different people listen to different people saying, oh, well, don't come home. He needs to stay away for a certain amount of time to get used to it. And lots of bad advice, I would say. So staying away and then the frustration of being injured because you're not fulfilling your purpose in theory, because if you can't play, everything becomes a lot more difficult. So didn't come home. But again, I wouldn't advocate or advise that. I think you have to kind of feel your way in. And again, we're going back. 1992 was a different time, really, compared to now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you've gone on record as saying that like, it was quite tough for young players at the time of Villa because like, there was a, like, a certain coach was actively bullying the kids. Did you talk us a little bit about that? Yeah, and again, you've done well for me. Sorry, the thing with Dave Richardson was Dave Richardson left within three months of me signing and moving across. He got headhunted and got a big role with the Premier League to set up the academy system in, in England. So for that period, obviously, there was a bit of transition with regards to who was in charge of the academy. But then it was later the next year, um, Big Ron got sacked and then Brian Little came in as the manager. And then obviously Brian Little brought his staff in and it was a different staff for everybody. So say on record, I've, I didn't have a very good relationship with some of the coaches. And I think that made it very, very difficult for some young players, especially young Irish players, mm. not alone me. And it was probably one of the key reasons why I left and I wasn't going to stay there because like everybody, you're looking at what your pathway to the first team is like, who's in your way, what are your opportunities going to be to develop? Is the environment a positive environment for young players to develop and thrive? And I would say that Aston Villa was definitely not that at that time. I think for me, I was quite fortunate that I was quite a strong character and I rated my ability if you like yeah. but it definitely didn't make it easy I was speaking to somebody recently about it and I think at one point I had actually I had more full caps for Ireland than I had appearances for Aston Villa wow. so it, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good time and yeah, yeah. it was something that I was fortunate I was able to move on and then there was um, well the story the background to the story was obviously a few years ago that a friend confided in me that he had had a horrific time there in the 80s. He'd been sexually abused by a coach from Aston Villa. Oh, wow. And I found that incredibly difficult. My, my friend is incredible. I've got so much um, respect for him. He's unbelievably brave, resilient, and a credible character. And he, when he told me this, I found it difficult to reconcile that this could have happened in a club in the 80s. And then you moved into mid to late 90s where you had what would, some would say would have been a bullying culture. Mm -hmm. And then that, that person involved had managed to stay in the club for nearly in excess of 20 years. There, then there had been a case taken by a parent with the club and then to the Premier League where he had pushed incredibly hard and again shown incredible resilience, mm -hmm. um, instigated an investigation independently of, by the Premier League and there was a finding of bullying against the club. And after the finding of bullying, the individual in question was actually elevated to a higher role rather than being moved for the club. So when you look at that timeline of kind of 25, 28 years, I found it incredibly difficult to get my head around it. And that was then when I arranged to meet with the journalist who had written the subsequent piece about the parents. And we did the pieces about... Aston Villa and again David Conn who writes for The Guardian is, is incredible he's a, a 
role model for anybody, an investigative journalist. There aren't many like him. And the point was we kind of sat down and set out how we would do it and go about it. And we did three, pa three pieces in the paper. I think now, God, when you look at dates, late 2018. And then the club set up their own independent investigation, commissioned the barrister to repair, prepare a report. And it took like nine months. And the report was obviously presented to the board at Aston Villa at the time. And the coach was, was, was removed. So I'm lucky. But there was lots of other people who, who weren't so lucky. And again, when you talk about how difficult it can be to make it as a footballer and the margins and the challenges you face, if you end up in the wrong environment, there's a lot of those players who still ask the question, well, maybe was I good enough or maybe it might have been a little bit different or was it me? And the point is they were just, I would say they were just unfortunate with the environment they found themselves in and that if they had been in a different academy with a different um, philosophy value system, then their outcomes may have been different. So yeah. it, was a, it, was, it was a challenging time, but... Thankfully, that individual was was removed. Yeah, yeah it's a strange. Like I said, it's strange that when it comes out and then he gets like promoted or such, it's just yeah, well, like, belief, really. yeah. But sometimes football, when you look at football, you can't really apply logic. Strange things yeah, tend to happen sometimes. Yeah, exactly. It's true. Uh, anyway, you kind of left Villa then, and you moved on to Everton in nineteen ninety seven. So what was it like as a, like an Everton fan signing for? No, well, I think it was one of the things that people never really got, or I was obviously not good at letting people know, was the fact that I was an Evertonian anyway, yeah. and that I'd started supporting Everton in 83. And mm -hmm. as I say, we had a little chat about it beforehand, and I'm not going to put my Zoom finger, but when you look at the, the gear then, I remember seeing the Lecoq Sportif kit, and I remember thinking the kit was awesome. And at that time in Dublin, everybody was supporting Man United or Liverpool. And I remember seeing Everton and thinking... Oh, I really like I really like that. I really like them. And that was it. And then obviously 1984, they won the FA Cup. And then that coincided obviously with Everton's purple patch, if you like, and having probably the best team they ever had. So it was great for me. So then 97, I, I knew I would be leaving Aston Villa. Howard Kendall was offered the job again for the third time. He spoke to my agent who said they were interested. And then I flew over from Dublin, arranged to meet him just as he'd been presented to the press with Adrian Heat and Viv Busby. And then that was it, signed. I, I say to people, I signed. My agent was still negotiating the contract, but I signed a blank contract and flew back home that night because I knew I wanted to play for Everton. Yeah, yeah. Just, I, like I said, I thought to feel like Derek Melfield, not a huge Everton fan about the feeling of signing for the club. And he said basically the same. Just yeah, well, you've had, some, you, you've had some proper, proper legends on already. You're balancing this, balancing the scales tonight. Don't, don't put yourself down, pal. That goal is worth twenty <laughs> hundred euros. <laughs> we'll get on to that in a minute. Uh, just uh, you struggled really to get a foothold in the first team when you signed for Everton. Was there a reason or reasons? No, I think. And again, you talk about people who may be listening to this. I think at the time, you talk about heart ruling head. Everton had they'd won the FA Cup in '95, but in three of the previous four seasons they'd been close and had relegation battles. I gave no thought to anything like that. I just wanted to play for Everton. That was as far as I went with it. So it was unusual in many ways coming from Aston Villa, which was kind of like top six team, challenging at the top end of the table. And whilst I didn't play a lot of games, coming on as a sub, 
there would have been less pressure because you you were winning or invariably dominating possession or in the ascendancy. A sign for Everton, and I don't think I really understood the intensity of Liverpool or fan expectation and everything that went with it. It was a difficult pre-season because I was recovering from an injury. And then you're kind of thrust into this where it became difficult with regards to being under pressure and being under pressure and having to kind of adapt and learn my first full season as an outright kind of first team player. And it, it took a little bit of getting used to. Yeah. you up against a certain individual for a place. I was just like a mix of three or four people trying to get into the team. No, within that, I think football, like when you talk about football is driven sometimes by um, ego, insecurity, fear. And I think for me, fundamentally, it wasn't about other people, if you like. We always judge others and think, well, hang on a second, I should be playing against him or I should be playing ahead of him or I'm better than him. How did the manager pick him after Saturday? It's part of the game. It's like, beware of the voices. It never stops. But I think the point for me at that time was uh, Everton had probably had an identity with the dogs of war. And the team probably, not that that wasn't there, but there was a bit of a change. I was a footballer. I judged myself by how many passes I'd had in the game. How many chances did I make? How many shots did I have? Did I contribute? And you kind of went into a situation where you mightn't have had more possession and your opportunities may have been limited. And then fans are also trying to get to know you to see what type of player you are. And it, it wasn't an easy time. So... I played, lots, I played lots of games and I was really, really pleased to play lots of games, but it wasn't a team that was full of confidence or doing very well. So for a young player, it made it that little bit harder. I think when you look at young players closely, you have a situation where what managers tended to do if they had that luxury was let the player come in, make an impact, and then look to take him out because they knew at a different time there may be a dip. And then slowly but surely integrate them into becoming a regular whereas that year at Everton that didn't really happen because there was a group of very talented young players but they found themselves in, in found themselves in quite a quite a pressure situation so it was a massive learning curve yeah we're going to the, uh, the goal itself the goal as I call it or that goal <laughs> I think I think I think everybody calls it that yeah 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 uh, just like on the lead up to that that last game of the season, what was the, what was the pressure like in around the squad, or what did you feel? Pressure? Oh, was it, it was, to be honest with you, it was a fascinating few weeks because I think we joke about things, and players will always remember certain things from certain games. Three weeks before that, I'd missed a chance at home against Leicester. It still comes back to me and haunts me at night now. Side foot volley. I don't know how if it hit my arse or my knee. <laughs> it would have gone in. I connected with it too well and went over the bar. And then I started to get a lot of stick every time I got the ball from the fans. Mm. And I remember thinking, God, this is like proper pressure. And then as, as is always the way in football, there's one thing that's guaranteed. When you're under pressure and you're getting stick, the ball is going to come to you even more. And, and I remember for that 20, 25 minutes thinking this was just massive, massive challenge. And I found it very, very hard. The next week we played Sheffield Wednesday at home. And Sheffield Wednesday were very good at that time. They beat us 4-1. And then the week after, we went to Highbury. And again, I was on the bench. I came on at halftime. We got beaten 4-0. And mm. Tony Adams scored left foot half volley. And they picked up the Premier League trophy. And I, was, um, I, I, I laugh at that story because I was at the Emirates a couple of years ago on a 
course. And as I walked into the reception of the Emirates, there's a huge picture on the wall with Tony Adams with his arms in the air celebrating that oh. goal. And I was in the background of the picture. <laughs> so I, I, took a, I took a picture of it and I sent it home to my son saying, here's the reality to football. You've got <laughs> Tony Adams looking like a Greek god having his picture taken. And I'm the one in the background thinking, I can't believe we're losing 4-0. I've played okay, but we've got stuffed. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that then led into the week. So the great thing about speaking to you and when you speak to Evertonians and fans is that invariably, be it a, a winning day or a big day in the history of the club, is they always have their memory or they always have what that day, what they did, where they were at. And I think yeah. after the Arsenal game, we got the bus back from London back to Liverpool and there was a, there was a corporate day on the Monday. We were sponsored by One to One at the time and there had been a corporate day arranged sponsors day at Pontefract races and there was a group of us who had played a smaller part in the game who said we don't want to go to the races we want to play in the reserve game and the reserve game on the Monday night was a mini derby at Anfield oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we were allowed to do that so we played in the game Monday we had a warm down Tuesday everybody had the day off on the Wednesday Howard wanted to give the players an additional day off that week because of the pressure, but all of the players turned around and said they wanted to train. So we trained Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then unusually for a home game, we went and stayed on the Whirl in Parkgate in a hotel on the Saturday to prepare for the game. And then that was again slightly surreal, but Sunday game preparation, we had a meeting before the game where the team was named and obviously I was playing, which was I was really, really excited about. Yeah. Then you had the surreal part of the day, which was the bus to the ground and the amount of people who were out supporting blue and white everywhere, flags, just a really, really different atmosphere, getting to the ground, your warm-up, the ground being nearly full for the warm-up. The FA Youth Cup had been won by the youth team. They were on the pitch. I think the women had won their league or cup and they were on the pitch as well. And it just felt like... Um, the atmosphere was incredible. And I think as football fans, and we joke about being Evertonians, but Evertonians don't do well with expectation and how that year had been quite difficult is that sometimes there's a, a determining event that means, well, no, hang on, there's something big at stake here. We need to disregard all of the bad stuff that's been going on and we need to get behind the club today. And I think that day, that day was incredible in that respect. So for me, then you talk about the goal is that everybody through lockdown has been looking at The Last Dance, Netflix, yeah. and you look back at like Michael Jordan, who was an amazing athlete and icon, and one of the quotes he'd said was that, I've missed X amount of shots, I've missed X amount of game winning points, but you keep, you keep going. And that, that year for me had been quite difficult because probably out of an eagerness to do well, I had loads of shots, I hit corner flags, I hit top of the stand, back of the stand. I made goalkeepers show reels because you were thinking some days, oh my God, how have they did that? But you, you, you keep going, you keep going because your hope was that if you keep doing the right things, you would get a positive outcome. And that's, and again, that's why there's, um, it's humbling even having the chat with you today because you look at the picture and you look at the history of Everton as a club and that we're not having this chat based on me having won trophies, but I've been very fortunate as an Evertonian to have played a small part in what has 
being a big um, point point for the club, of which not being relegated. So it's incredible having been a young Evertonian in Dublin growing up who wanted to play for Everton and spent all my time in school writing out that team on my copy books and drawing the crest to to have done that. So it's an incredible thing to be able to say. Well, me personally, I think it's just as important as any of the league league trophies or cup wins. I mean, it's... Yeah, no, listen, the cup... That knows what would have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, and, and, and that's the nice part. But again, football, you move on. You don't really think about it. The realities of football for me was... I had an outcome like that with the club I supported, having had a difficult season. I met Howard Kendall the next week and we had a really open conversation about something like that could never happen again. It's going to be different next year. You've done really well as a young player. Look forward to coming back. And then within a week, he'd been sacked. And then new manager comes in and within the first day turns around and says, you're not in my plans, you can leave. Yeah, yeah. So you go, you go from... You go from having a massive outcome like I did to playing eight minutes Premier League football the following year. And I played a, like the equivalent of a Caribou Cup game against Oxford early in the season. And all of those games are always set up for the players who are not in the team. You're not match fit. You've not been playing games regularly because you're not in the first team. You play against a team that's played six or seven games already. They're all match fit and battle-hardened. And it's very difficult to play to the best of your ability but the managers love them games because it means you can't go in and see them because they'll just turn around and say, oh, well, you had your chance on Wednesday and you didn't take it. Yeah, and football, yeah. Football's always been like that. So that I went from outcome to a year of not playing any football at all. Mm. And then this, the season after that, um, the first team squad were returning to training on the 7th of July and the, they had us back on the 14th of June. So there was a group of us running around Croxted Park on the 14th of June, while the lads were sending us pictures of their pina coladas and palm trees on the holidays. <laughs> so there was like old people, old people out walking their dogs, looking at this small group, like mm. the Dirty Dozen, running around <laughs> Croxted Park. And there was some, some like exceptional players in that group, but they just, mm. that was how the club sought to force the players to kind of move on by treating them poorly mm. and differently. And then we ended up in a situation where we didn't even go to the training ground anymore. So we were training at Netherton with the academy. So Colin Harvey, Andy Holden used to have a scenario where every morning they'd be looking after the youth team and they would have seven or eight of us that weren't even at the training ground anymore. So the only time we would get back to the training ground was international week because the players would be away. They'd need some numbers to try and fill the sessions. So that was, that was the reality. So we talk about the goal, but fundamentally... The reality is, as with football, you can go from being villain, having a hard time, to hero, and then all of a sudden you're not you're not playing football anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a it was a strange time. Mm. Just on the like the, the goal itself, like Howard Howard's told a couple of stories where he told a story a few times that like he had a dream the night before that like, you you come on and scored scored the winning goal. But just tell us about the goal itself and the game as well because it was such a roller coaster game. Yeah, but I, I think sometimes players, I enjoyed the pressure of big games. I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed it. And I just, I, I think that day, you remember thinking like the atmosphere, probably one of the best atmospheres I've ever encountered, probably for strange reasons, like I said, about how tense it was and what was at stake. But I come back, you say the goal, 
I wouldn't. Have, I didn't think about it a lot. And I brought my son to Goodison five years ago, probably for for the first time. And we were walking up through the the stairs to get out to the seats. And as we went out, Zed cars came on, and they were showing some of the goals on the big screen. And that was one of the goals they were showing. And obviously, I'm looking at it through his eyes, and it's obviously a massive thing for him. But when you look at it, like again, having tried and failed a number of times, it's a. I'm really, really pleased with it. It was, it was a proper, proper goal. Yeah, it was Australia's game actually. Because remember, like obviously, Nick Barmy missed the penalty. Yeah, but that I think that adds that adds to the lore for me. Oh, that doesn't doesn't oh. detract from the story in any way. If it had been oh, two, no, if, if we'd won two 0 with Barmy scoring the penalty, that's it doesn't yeah. have the same magic. And then yeah. Nicky Barmy was terrific, and I really liked playing with him. He was he's, he's a brilliant guy. But I mm. think the other part of that day that's maybe not, it's not tainted, but Thomas Myra had been magnificent that season. Yeah, for 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 his first season when he came in to try and replace Neville Southall, like mm. no one could do that. But he'd been exceptional throughout that season, and then people always associate. Oh, we let the Dion Dublin header through his hands, yeah, and then was, that was like, like one a win. Hollywood save. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So like, and then that obviously, <laughs> yeah. But that brought more pressure then because fans, everybody was having to calculate and go, oh, hang on, if it's not three points, well then we're level on points. Where are Bolton up to? And again, you had the situation with Bolton where drawing it would have been them that stayed up. And Jody Morris scored two late goals and the Chelsea fans booed. Yeah, I because... know. I was, actually, I was actually in Goodison that day. But I was listening to the Chelsea match on, on, on the radio. And I, I just couldn't believe Chelsea fans booing their own players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, when you think about what goes into last day drama, I think that kind of had everything. And then, obviously, scoring the goal, the feeling of elation that came with that. Mm. And then the feeling at the end about getting the outcome that we, we, we'd stayed up and then the reaction and that's back to where we started about everybody has their story, people who were on the pitch, people who were there with family. So it was massive. But again, not saying sound weird. I remember going in afterwards and just being like relieved and like relieved and like, how did, how did it get that close? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. And I, I going home and just being exhausted. So yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good day. Yeah. yeah. A strange day. It was good. It yeah, was strange day, strange day, and thankfully we got we got the positive outcome. People, listen, people talk about oh, if Premier League era, if Everton have gone down, look at what happened. But like Everton as a club, like all of those things, thankfully it's not an issue. Yeah, and yeah. it hasn't and it hasn't been an issue subsequently. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, like I said, you left Everton like uh, the next year, ironically to to move to Bolton, the the team you helped. Like no, well, they yeah, they were very, they were they were very yeah. very aware of that and reminded me. Yeah. But it was it was, I wasn't playing. All footballers want to play. You want to play at three o'clock on a Saturday. Otherwise, it's a bit like a boxer. You're preparing for a fight, and you're never getting a fight. You're playing in the reserves. You've lost your place in the international squad. It's like it's very difficult to kind of maintain your focus, because that the truth being, football is a game of distraction. The game is the best part. It's all of the other parts around it that are always testing, challenging, and trying to have a negative effect on you. So I trained with a sports scientist who was a friend of mine. And whilst I was sort of out of favour, we used to call it the bomb squad, which was a group of us who used to like train. We were surplus to requirements one way or another. But I used them, I would drive to Sheffield twice a week to do some extra training to try and be fit for if a move came or 
to try and help me. And Sam Allardyce got the Bolton job and he was after some players. They'd been talking me going to different places on loan. Sam spoke to my friend about players and my friend said, why don't you take Gareth? And he said, well, I've heard mixed things about him and he's not fit. And my, my pal said, I'm telling you he's fit because he's been driving to see me twice a week on his own for the last eight weeks. So we said, just, just get him in and then you'll, the rest will take care of itself. So he did that. So I signed on loan initially to Bolton on a Friday. Uh, signed for what I thought was the weirdest club ever because when I went into training on the first morning, there was nobody speaking. I had never seen a club like it. I thought, oh my God, what's going on here? This place is <laughs> it's not right. And basically, very quickly was informed that there'd been a, an incident on a team bonding session oh. on the Wednesday night before that where yeah. Andy, Andy Todd had taken Phil Brown to task. Severely, I think, is the word. And that was why the atmosphere was quite, quite strained. Mm. Thankfully, trained on the Saturday, played Sheffield United away on the Sunday and I scored after like eight, nine minutes against Sheffield United. We won 2-1 and then you start to feel like a footballer again because you're doing what you're, what you're supposed to be, not, yeah. not just training with the youth team or not really having any purpose. So that was a great start for me. But then my, um, my father died of a heart attack that next week. Oh, so I, I played on the Sunday and then my, my father died on the Thursday following Thursday of a heart attack so again part, part of life mm. but um, a difficult time yeah okay. yeah, yeah uh, so uh, that, at that time then the loan I, the loan was the loan was turned into a permanent I was kind of on the bench in and out I struggled to recover from the death of my father and probably everything that had gone on and Bolton lost in the semi-final of the playoffs that season to Ipswich which is one of the trivia playoff games because Bolton had 11 yellow cards and two reds really? that night in the second leg at Portman Road and I still didn't get on so like I came I came I came away I came away from that season thinking bloody hell I need to need to get myself going here yeah. and Bolton had to sell some players either Go Johnson went to Chelsea he was exceptional Klaus Jensen mm. moved to Charlton as did Mark Fish and there wasn't that much expectation for Bolton that year there was still some good players there but the forces in the championship if you like were Fulham under Jan Tigana and Blackburn were incredibly strong under Graeme Souness but mm. we, we got promoted that season through the playoffs and I had probably one of my best seasons in England Yeah, yeah. you scored in the playoff final didn't yeah. you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Some, yeah, yeah. I was talking about it the other day so on this day yeah, so it was good but then back to the Premier League and I got injured in the pre-season there was a change of uh, fitness coaches and conditioners and missed out on the start of the season and then that was kind of the start of the deterioration of my relationship with Big Sam if you like yeah yeah you played with some great players like remember like uh, JJ Akotche Yuri's Jokiev some well Yuri's Yuri's Yuri was a friend and is is a friend now because I, oh, we, we, we re-engaged because he um, a course I undertook with UEFA Yuri mm -hmm. uh, was on it as well so it was like amazing to reconnect with him, having not yeah. seen him for years. And he's now the head of the FIFA Foundation. So he's oh, gone on to do great things. And, and Yuri's, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He, he's a, he was an exceptional footballer and he's, he, he's a really, really good guy. So yeah, but Bolton, everyone will naturally gravitate towards. JJ Koche was had incredible ability. It was great yeah. to play with him, as, as, did, as did Yuri. Ivan Campo was there, again, 
the names, but like there was yeah. a core, there was a core spine in that Bolton team that was very strong. And they were strong when Sam came, and then they were there all the way through. Juicy Jaskalainen was incredible. Goodney yeah, Bergson yeah. was there, and he was incredible. Michael Ricketts had an incredible impact. You know, Kevin Nolan had a great career at Bolton. Mm. There was there was a core group that again coincided with what became a really really good time for Bolton as a club. Yeah. So, and what happened with Sam? How how did it? No, we just fell out. We fell out. We fell out. Yeah, gradual thing, as his ego got bigger, and you're not playing. That's really? <laughs> yeah. So there's that part, but then fundamentally, you look back on things, and I caused a lot of my own problems. You end up falling mm. out with people, and again, it's back to that um, having a degree in maturity and mm. repeating the same patterns. So you look at things like that as opposed to sort of focusing on the things you can control, which is yourself, yeah. you end up being distracted by things going on. And that comes back to, it might even sound like petty things that, how can that guy be playing in midfield ahead of me? I'm better than him. And then when you get the chance, all of your energy then is focused on proving a negative. So you're yeah. not actually focusing on, right, today I just need to work hard and play to the best of my ability. And that's, and that's again, that youth is wasted on the young in many ways. Yeah. And when I, when I look back now, I think I would positively do a lot of things differently. So I had five years at Bolton. I had, a, I had a great time at Bolton, as I did most places I was. I made a lot of good relationships and friends, but I'd kind of fallen out of love with it at that point. And that was as much down to me as it was the management. So I can't or wouldn't sit down and say, oh, well, look at him. That's the reason yeah. things didn't yeah. go the way they should have done. I was a, an active part in contributing to my own downfall yeah. and it's a bit like you're never you're never going to beat the house so you can have you can think you're right and you can think you have the best case ever but fundamentally you're not going to win 2020 is a great thing isn't it really yeah really bloody hell yeah yeah <laughs> where, where can you buy it where can you buy that i'll have, I'll have yes, some of absolutely yeah yeah you'd be a millionaire if you could bottle it. uh you come back down to league of ireland like for a couple of years with bows and cork uh was that always a plan to return to ireland at some stage uh, no no oh. No, not at all. Um, having fallen out of love with football to a degree, I was given a great opportunity at Bohemians. And I thought, I've played for good managers, bad managers. Um, I'm incredibly passionate about Irish football. I had watched Rosenberg closely. I had strong beliefs on player development and environment and um, infrastructure and coaching things that I always had maintained an interest in. And I came home kind of with a plan and that plan was also balanced against a budget and financing that was agreed. And I was young, I was naive. I was 28 when I walked out of the Premier League. Like, how stupid. Like, let's be fair. It's not the best decision or the decision of somebody who's thinking clearly. Yeah. I was in the eye of the storm. I, 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 didn't want to, I didn't want to play anymore. I couldn't see the wood from the trees. So... I, I took the job and I was naive with regards to management experience, but there was a plan. There was some really, really good people around me who I brought in who shared that same philosophy. But within a very short time of being at Bohemians, I was informed that the budget that I'd agreed and what I had inherited wasn't going to be the case. So my budget was cut, I think, over 30%. So I inherited a dressing room with 12 players out of contract, having been in England for like, over 10 years, 12 years, and never knew what the man next to me earned. I went into a situation in Ireland where everybody knew. And then you were having a conversation over, have they offered you gross net? 
how is it paid? And Bohemians was a, I wouldn't say a funny club in the respect that one of the directors was a, worked with the revenue. So Bohemians paid their taxes properly. So people were talking to me about gross and net. And I was like, oh, well, no, hang on a second. What does that mean? Whereas in Ireland at that time, there was people being paid net. There was people being paid in envelopes. There was, it, it was, it was, it was a crazy system, but out of the 12 players out of contract, over half of whom you would have wanted to keep, I ended up getting to keep two. So naively, you still think, oh my God, like I can still do it. Like I've got a strong 11. So what I did at that time was I took the under 18s from Belvedere. There's a brilliant coach in Ireland. He was always developed really, really good players. uh, Jimmy Jackson. They came into Bohemians as like the under 20, under 21s. And I knew that if I had a good 11 and that if we needed the bench to be made up or players that would potentially break through, then I had this kind of core group of under 19 players who would be able to step up. And to be honest with you, they did. They were incredible. And a lot of them played in the first team. But the reality for Bohemians was as a big club, there was still an expectation that we should win a treble as a minimum. So it became, it became more challenging. And there was issues around money, people being paid on time, um, cash flow problems. So as, as a young player manager, as well as playing, learning to manage, you were dealing with um, crisis management basically on a weekly basis. Then you were, had situations where like Dominic Foley, who was one of the best players in the league, ended up being able to walk out of the club on a free because he was able to terminate his contract because the club hadn't paid certain things that were due to him over a length of time. So I did it for two years. I had a, um, it was a fascinating experience. I still feel sorry to a degree for some of the people that I brought in or who worked with me because I never got to finish what I'd kind of sold to them. But the point was at that time, we wouldn't have been able to do it anyway, because if your foundations are built on sand, you're not going to be able to compete against others. And at that time, there was other clubs in Ireland that had huge budgets, Drogheda, Shelburne, Derry, Cork. So they were actually, if you think about Drogheda at that time, they were actually paying transfer fees for people. So if you think about Eamon Zaid, Keith Fahey, they were like, they were paying Simon on fees just to sign them. Whereas week to week, we were worrying about whether people would get paid or not. And that was, the players were, were brilliant because you were asking people to go out and play in games and give 100% for you and their teammates when they were worried about whether they were going to be able to pay their mortgage or not. So yeah. it, was a, it was a fascinating time. And you forget, obviously, all of the things you had to deal with. But with regard to a life experience and learning, I don't think I would have ever had an experience like it. Yeah. yeah. You moved down to Cork then? No, no, no. I came back to England. I came back to England because um, my wife was pregnant. Oh, <clears throat> And I signed for Blackpool. Okay. A short-term contract for Blackpool. And that was Blackpool, very strong team. They got promoted from League One to the Championship. Mm-hmm. But in between then, I signed for, I signed for Cork. And, and to be honest, I signed for Cork, but I signed for Damien Richardson. Okay, yeah, Damien. Yeah. It was, it was a great guy. And I, I really, really like him. And out of my whole football career, I would probably say that Cork was probably one of the best times I had. The dressing room was incredible. The players were... Were, were brilliant and I, and I loved it and again as a dub you know people say Cork sometimes it can be funny how you get on down there but I, I had a brilliant time yeah. and, I, and I loved it but we talk about learning the law or where was your interest peaked in the law Colin Healy and I 
fell foul of FIFA regulations as soon as we were there on the three club rule, which meant that we signed in February with a view to starting the season in March. And then we were told that we couldn't play until the 1st of July because we'd had three clubs. So my, I was classified, I'd been at Bohemians, I'd been at Blackpool and then signing for Cork. So we did what everybody does. We, we took our case to FIFA, got spanked, then appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. <clears throat> we could play on the 1st of July and the case was heard on the 14th of June. So we went across to Lausanne in Switzerland, went to this like idyllic, beautiful place, went into the Court of Arbitration for Sport, incredible history, appeared in front of three arbitrators, put up a f- brilliant case where we walked out thinking, yeah, we have to have done well here. Got a phone call within half an hour to say, you got spanked. All three arbitrators <laughs> ruled against you. Um, and you can play in two weeks, but you can't do anything before that. So it was fascinating because the case, we lost the case, but obviously the particular regulation at that time was relevant because um, Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano had had a similar situation when they came across from yeah 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 West Ham yeah. and then to, to Liverpool, but they were they were given a dispensation to play, but they changed the regulations after our case. So that's now the bit where you get to say to people, we lost the we lost the battle but won the war. Yeah yeah, and that, it leads on to the next point. Like it's strange because you went on obviously you have a successful career as a lawyer, but you actually got brought onto the court of arbitration. Not yeah, so yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So you see, as a footballer, you have um, you have like dreams and goals, of what you want to do. And my, I look back on my career as one of underachievement. I didn't fulfil my potential. I did it on occasion, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it enough. My personality was very much. I was I was a perfectionist. So I thought about everything. So basically, after a game, if nine people came up to me and said, "You did really well today, Gareth," and one said you were crap, I went home with the one that was crap. And go home, shut the curtains, and then start again the next day. So from that footballing point, on reflection, you look back at all of the things you've done and you think, well, everything I kind of set out as wanting to do, I did it. So I was very, very lucky. But then you move into a second kind of career profession and you think, well, I want to be the best I can be in that as well. So the Court of Arbitration for Sport, as the Supreme Court of Sport, if you like, was always something I looked at and said, God, I would love to be an arbitrator there. Could you imagine having appeared in front of the court to one day be one of the arbitrators yourself? (laughs) Yeah, so I I, I was appointed to the court last last July. So I was was buzzing and I I, I love it. And as I say, I have have my first few cases. I'm still learning. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm as pleased with that as I would probably be as... Anything I achieved while I played football. Mm-hmm. Was it a plan to go into law from, from an early no. age? Or you just stumbled across the job? Yeah, no, listen, stumbled. Then um, I think trying to tidy up all the mistakes I made whilst I played football. Uh, whilst I was recovering from my illness, I had, um, I had the English revenue at the house for a tax debt to do one of the investments I had been put into while I played football. And I knew nothing about any potential bill or liability that I would get. So I did what everybody does. I phoned my advisor to say, <clears throat> what's going on with this? Surely there's been a mistake. He did what all advisors do, say yes, sought to placate me, tell me, don't worry, we'll sort it out. 
yeah. and it, it, it raised a red flag for me. I was like, again, I was, I was 32. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to play football again. I had a wife and two young kids. And I started to think, well, no, hang on a second. I think I need to learn a little bit more about this. So I arranged to get all of my financial records, started going through them, started to read them. And again, didn't understand all of the language around legal language or financial services <clears throat> and decided that if I'm going to understand this, I need to, need to understand the law. So I thought I need to, I need to look at doing that. So that was kind of what set me on the path to do it. So I went into Liverpool to a university to ask about possibly doing a degree. I was dismissed in no uncertain terms, yeah. saying that I'd been out of education for too long. I needed to go away for a few years, consider a foundation course, and then maybe, maybe they would consider me for a, the course. And then I had the, an absolute counter experience at Edgehill University in Ormskirk, where I went to an open day there, asked them about it, and they were incredibly supportive and encouraging. So they explained to me that there was a course that they ran in the summer. It was called a fast track course. If I passed the course, I would get a place on the degree. I had to go and do an interview with the head of the legal department. And I had returned to training at this point. I'd done my rehab at Preston <clears throat> and then signed for Morecambe, non-contract terms. And season finished, I went into university for the six weeks, passed the course, went back to pre-season, got offered a place on the degree, realised I wasn't going to play at Premier League or Championship level again, so made the decision that that's me, done. I'm going to retire and go back and go to university. And that's what I did. So again, I was very lucky. It was incredibly daunting, having been out of education for 16 years. I had done the first junior cert in Dublin before I came away. So... I had no email address. I couldn't send an email. I, I, had, I had very little idea of what was ahead of me, but I, I, I liked it and I, was, I got really, really good support. So I enjoyed it, but always in the back of my mind was I wanted to figure out how I could potentially um, go after the people that put me in the position they had. Okay. So I was, I, was, I, was, I was quite motivated with that as well. Yeah. So that was oh, it. So, so I qualified. It took me, sorry, it took me six or seven, six and a half, seven years to qualify as a lawyer. So I've been qualified for two and a half years now. Yeah. Well, it's, and the part of the Premier League <laughs> Judicial Panel as well, aren't you? Yeah, I was recently appointed to the Premier League Judicial yeah. Panel, which again is a huge honour because the people that are on the panel have had incredible distinguished legal careers. Mm -hmm. And as I say, in many ways, I'm still learning the law. And it's, <clears throat> but you counter that by saying there's not many former Premier League footballers <coughs> who've gone on to take take a role or a position on a, a on the judicial panel. So again, it's it's incredibly uh, humbling. Yeah, you're also uh, part of the referees assessor team, aren't you? No, no, no. That's a different role. Yeah, I think. The, oh, the, the, no, no, no. You're right, but the 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 role is classified as a Premier League match delegate. Okay. And yeah, I've done it for a few years now, which is basically assisting and ass assessing the referees in the Premier League. So I get to do a few games a month and get to see the referees working up close and uh, gain an absolutely different insight to what you would have had as a player. So I really, really enjoy it. And I've got, got incredible respect for the referees. They do, they do an incredible job. They, they operate in the world where when they get the decisions right, they're wrong. And when they get the decisions wrong, they're wrong. 
So it's not a lot of uh, job satisfaction. So it's been fascinating to see how they work individually and collectively and meet the demands of the modern game. And they're, they're exceptional. So it's, it's, it's something I really enjoy doing. Do you have meetings with like Mike Riley? Mike, Mike Riley is the head of PGMOL, and I probably wouldn't see him a lot. What tends mm. to happen is you'll be allocated to a game, and then you get informed of who the officials are going to be for that game, and then you can see them. It depends whether Mike Riley will be going and watching that game himself. But it, it, football is fascinating because you can kind of dip in or dip out, and mm. it's it's really really nice to still kind of dip in and see the Premier League up close and how all of these things work. But your, your kind of role within that is you're your focused on the, on the match officials as opposed to yeah. everything else that goes on around it. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just touched on it there in a short time ago about you had a major health scare in 2012. Could you talk to us a little bit about 12, that? No, 2000, 12 years ago now, 2008. 2008, I apologise. On yeah, the 12th yeah, yeah. of so, May, 2008, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, 30th of April, 2008. I, I won't forget it because it was my daughter's birthday. But I, yeah, I had a stomach aneurysm. I was still playing at Cork at that time. Okay. And I, w- I was actually over in the UK because I was going to see a physio in Bournemouth. <clears throat> so for lunch, blew the candles out on my daughter's cake. And then I headed off to Bournemouth, which should have been three and a half to four hour drive to get there. Yeah. And basically I, I took ill in the car at Warwick. So ended up being rushed into A&E and then having emergency surgery and having had an aneurysm of the splenic artery and then like recovery and trying to deal with that. So I'm part of 10% that live from that type of aneurysm. So, um, yeah, very, very lucky. Yeah, yeah. I, I read an article there, just doing a bit of research on this. And uh, part of the article, you, you text the sourcing every year on that date. To say, yeah. Hey, yeah. And, that, and that's about him. Much. Yeah. That's about him. Not about me because fundamentally that day will always be significant. And I always think of him because without his kind of intervention and the people I met, um, I wouldn't be here having this, having this conversation with you. And I think the context of that was not to talk about texting per se, but it was as much to do with um, the respect I would have for the NHS in the UK because yeah. fundamentally I'm only here because of them. Mm-hmm. If, if I go back to it, I was, I was rushed into A&E in Warwick and the, uh, gastroenterologist on call was on call once a month and he's a Man City fan and obviously he asked me what I did and I had incredible care from him he in turn transferred me to the surgeon who looked after me in Walsgrave Hospital in Coventry and his team were involved obviously in my surgery and my recovery the intensive care nurses the doctors when I came home I had district nurses calling to the house Mm. and the doctors locally so I was incredibly fortunate and, and, and blessed and that kind of coincided with my frustrations and um, disappointment that these people were working through the coronavirus and uh, being in in their workplace without the correct equipment to protect them whilst they mm. continued to go about saving people so that was kind of the context behind that but mm. I always think of them we still speak, and yeah, he's, a, he's an incredible man. Yeah, yeah, right place, wrong time, or wrong, wrong time. No, no, right I think, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think when, yeah. When, when you look at it that way, obviously, it becomes, it becomes, uh, <clears throat> I was being looked after. Yeah, yeah. Is there any long term? Uh, no, 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 I'm, bl- I'm, I'm blessed. I, I, 
I still have to take antibiotics every day because I, I lost all of my, I, I lost 20% of my stomach, 40% of my pancreas, all of my spleen and part of my colon. So it's like, you know, if you were playing operation, <laughs> it's part of part of operation would look like like slightly different for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, but that, that that was a strange time though, Joe, because again, you talk about I I I had a great time at Cork. The, the the club doctor at Cork had been incredible with me, Jared Murphy. But all I wanted to do was try and play football again. Yeah. But Cork didn't want me back, mm. and that was like a very very difficult thing to deal with, because having come through the illness and athletes are incredibly resilient and determined. And it was like, I'd made my mistakes before that. And it was like, this is my opportunity now for however long I just want to try and get fit. And I just want to play again. And that, I, I didn't get that opportunity. I was unceremoniously told that I wasn't welcome back there. And that was in turn then how I had to plan an alternative route, which was through Preston and then, I got that fit. I was incredibly fit, fitter than I had been for years and years. And I ended up being back, if you like, playing men's football. But I knew there was always going to be a question mark over my medical. So in some ways, there's a lot of talk now about athlete transition and the issues around that and how difficult it can be. So I think my decision was probably made a bit easier because of my illness. You know what I mean? I had to start yeah. thinking about it that little bit earlier so I kind of reconciled and made peace with that yeah absolutely amazing it's like a great story I love like I said I love the, the the text of the soldier I think that's that's a great touch yeah but again I, I don't I'm not it's about it's about him it's absolutely, about him because yeah, it's like yeah. but it, it will always be like we go back to memories again that it will never not be a day of significance if you like because of what could have been <clears throat> Do you keep in touch with many lads back from your days at Everton? Everton, Everton's, Everton is a, a special club. Everybody who supports their own club says that. But I think, having been a fan, the thing I really, really enjoy about when I do go back is that you get to see your heroes. They're on your wall behind you. Yeah. You know, like yeah. people that I grew up um, supporting, idolising, if you like. And yeah. then out of, out of the group from my time there, obviously, I would still see Duncan, <coughs> Tony Grant, over the last few years as well, what's been amazing is um, re-engaging with Slavin. Oh, Slavin Village, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he'd be a very good friend of mine and it's brilliant to see how well he was doing mm. with West Brom, having done a brilliant job at West Ham before he was mm. sacked. So football is nice because dressing rooms, like anyone who plays in teams, there'll be people you're close to, there'll be people you're not. And I think when you finish, you get the opportunity to deal with the people you like yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, um, again, it's, it's, it's always nice. Like, you talk about Everton as a club as an example, but if you look at, like, the ambassadors, you were the Graham Stewart is down there, Ian Snodden, um, Pat Vandenhow works at the club again, who was an, an incredible footballer. You know what I mean? It's always Graham Sharp, who's been promoted now and has a new role. And again, I grew up, he would have been one of the, one of the top ones. Obviously, for me, I would have thought more about midfield players, Kevin Sheedy, Peter Reid, mm -hmm. Paul Bracewell, Trevor Stephen, who I got to meet at one of the games recently, who'd come over from Dubai. So, again, things like that, it's, it's priceless, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mr. Gareth, thank you so much for today. Really, really enjoyed it, Pat. No, 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 listen, I, I'm, I'm a huge, the Irish toffees, so yeah. I, I, I read and hear about people all the time, but I'm a, I'm a Dublin Evertonian, slightly unusual. 
Yeah, yeah. That's right. Listen, pal, look after yourself and stay Lovely safe. Lovely to see you. Look forward to seeing you over here soon. Yeah, take care, buddy.